Welcome back to the Therapy Insights Podcast. This is where we get to talk about um, SLPs, OTs, and PTs working together to help people through some of the most extraordinary challenges of their lives. And we approach these conversations not only talking about, you know, how we manage things like swallowing, talking, walking, eating, bathing, all of that, but also looking at things from more of a counseling perspective. And I started this podcast because I think a lot of us are not necessarily given a lot of opportunity to take a counseling course in our training, and we don't have a lot of tools or experience in the counseling realm, even though that tends to be a very big part of our job. And so that's what I'm doing with this podcast is talking with people who are who have experience with counseling techniques and coaching techniques, and they have some insights and advice for us that we can apply to our clinical practice within our own scopes of practice as rehabilitation therapists. And today I'm talking with Jesse Hillock, and Jesse is the founder of The Memory Compass based in Zionsville, Indiana, and I first came across Jesse's work on Instagram. And I was like, this is really, really fascinating. And I clicked on her website and was just completely drawn into what she was doing. She has a really unique approach to dementia care, um, including coaching for families. And so I had this conversation with Jesse. I hope you enjoy it. We talk all about her model um, of, of dementia care, dementia therapy, coaching for families within the memory compass. We touch on some of the challenges that we all face as far as Medicare and insurance and billing and some of the pieces of the system that are broken and that don't entirely allow us to serve this population very well right now. Uh, But like I said in our interview, I think that's getting better and I think it's because of people like Jesse. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Jesse Hillock. So the first place I want to start is to hear your story. So go back as far as you need and just kind of tell us all the different points that led to where you are today. Okay. So I graduated. Um, I think that's the easiest place to start is just just graduating and thinking that I was going to work in a hospital and, you know, hospital positions are few and far between. And I had done an internship at a skilled nursing facility and the skilled nursing facility Um, hired me on, you know, after my internship was complete. And I didn't think that I was ever going to stay there, but I ended up staying in skilled nursing setting for about six and a half years before going out on my own. And I fell in love with it. But in the beginning, um, you know, when I was in my CFY, I was told all about, you know, building a caseload of individuals of, you know, patients who have dementia. And I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. And I think that still rings true today because I'll see, you know, in all the different Facebook groups that are out there, somebody will post, you know, I don't know what to do with this dementia patient where I've had very little training with this. And I was there myself. I I had absolutely no idea what I was doing because we really weren't trained in it, but I had an excellent CFY supervisor who was, and she did not believe in using workbooks. She did not believe in working on things that weren't functional. So it was all about, you know, going into their environment and treating them there and getting on their level versus, you know, the patient could recall some words out of the paragraph or that's just not, not functional for, for that population. But I had to research so much on my own of what to do. 
And I think that's why I fell in love with it because I was in the dark and I had to figure it out on my own. Um, and that became the population that I absolutely love the most. So more than, you know, the rehab patients who were there for stroke, like I absolutely loved working on the memory care unit. And then it turned like that love turned into me transitioning to another skilled nursing facility building. And they had another SLP there, but that SLP herself didn't feel comfortable in the dementia population. So the building was only a year old and they had a memory care unit and nobody, they didn't have any form of a staging program. Nobody had been assessed to determine what their cognitive level was. They had no form of any type of programming. Um, they had activities, but the activities were lacking in being individual to, you know, the patient's level and what would be most functional for them. So I went in and over the course of about six months, where appropriate, I basically staged almost every individual within that skilled nursing, uh, like within that memory care. The company liked what I did. So they ended up, um, having me go to sister facilities and train the therapist, uh, you know, the speech therapist and sister facilities, how to do the same thing for some of the buildings that also really didn't have any form of a true memory care staging program. And then from there, um, I started also training like PTs and OTs who were new grads and really didn't have very much experience. I had an OT doctoral student um, and her whole project was all about just cognitive programming. Um, and I, I felt that I was, you know, I'm onto something here. I absolutely love this population. But the thing that made me the most sad was that I wasn't seeing people until they were already in more of a crisis situation of either they were rehabbed to home or either they were needing a change in their level of care. So, you know, they needed assisted or memory care or long-term care. And so many families, when I would have care plans, would say to me, like, nobody, like the neurologist had said early stage, middle stage, late stage, but they never really explained to me, what does that mean in terms of carryover of my loved one? And I just felt like we're lacking here. I have all this knowledge and understanding of this disease. Why aren't we reaching these individuals before they get to, you know, needing this increased level of care? So that's really where the memory compass was born. Um, with me wanting to go out into the community and start that mobile private practice and try to, you know, help people age in place and possibly prevent needing to transition to skilled nursing. I know that there's a time and a place for it, but can people live at home as long as possible and give the families the tools too um, that they thought that they would receive from the neurologist, but they really weren't. Right. Yeah. It's amazing what you're doing. So you have the memory compass which mm -hmm. is based in Zionsville, Indiana. Mm -hmm. And just to give people an idea, your logo is a compass. And then it has the four words, support, purpose, compassion, and advocacy around the different directions. Yes. So tell us about the memory compass. You kind of told us why you started it, but tell us more about what you offer to your community. Yeah. So like I said, I, I felt like people weren't receiving the knowledge base that, that speech therapists have until they get into that skilled nursing situation. And I was hearing from countless families um, just how little support they had. And so I, I at first 
wanted to just do dementia family coaching. I didn't want to get credentialed with Medicare because I was scared because as speech therapists, we're not taught about Medicare either. It's just like we know the codes to use, but <laughs> nobody really teaches us about why things are billed a certain way or the ins and outs of Medicare because our productivity expectations are so high. We don't have the time to learn about all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at first I thought, well, I'm just going to do the dementia family coaching and I'm just going to focus on more of that sandwich generation of, um, you know, the families who they, they could be working. They're the children of the individual who has a dementia diagnosis. They could be working full time, taking care of their own children, but then now facing the situation where they're now caring for their aging parents. Um, and it wasn't anything speech therapy based. It was just based off of my love that I had when I was in those care plan conferences with families of, you know, um, you meet with me, we go over, you know, the challenges that you're facing, never meeting your loved one, just going over the challenges that you're facing personally, um, the local area resources, um, you know, some of the basic of course, communication approaches, but not necessarily speech-based. It's just, you know, what everyone offers, you know, the Alzheimer's associations, like here's my 10, you know, talking tips, here's. um, And then later I had some mentors and they said, you know, I really think that you should be credentialed with Medicare. I really think that you should, you know, do this mobile practice. And I didn't want to do it, Um, but then I I did. And it was a complete total learning curve. So I got credentialed. It takes about three months to get credentialed as a Medicare provider. Um, And I basically kind of just networked with anyone you could possibly imagine within the senior care space from elder law attorneys to in-home companion care companies to, you know, anything, the local Alzheimer's Association, uh, rock steady boxing for Parkinson's and, you know, Louis body dementia, and basically just met with anybody who would listen to me Incredible. <laughs> and told them what my, yeah, told them what my vision was. And, um, everyone has been very supportive, but what I love about the memory compass and what makes it different is that usually when you have an outpatient clinic, you see, you know, PT, OT, ST for let's just say 12 sessions, and then you discharge and then you say, well, hope I don't have to see you again (laughs) until, you know, you need me again. But with dementia, these, the family needs support during the entire journey. It's not just during those 12 Medicare sessions, you know, um, So I've built kind of this hybrid model where I support not only just the individual who has a diagnosis through traditional Medicare Part B services, but then also the family through a private pay model, even after therapy discharges, Um, you know, even after Medicare Part B is completed. Um, And there's really like in my area, there's really not, there's nothing else like that. Um, I'm sure it will I'm, I'm sure it will um, become, you know, popular. <laughs> I hope so. I mean, I'm just like, I, so I came across you on Instagram and I was looking at your site and I was like, oh my gosh. Like if I was looking for a family member for support, if I was in this situation, this is exactly what I would need. And like for any SLPs listening to this podcast, like we should be inspired by all the PT private practices out there. Like there's no reason 
that we should not have just as many private practice SLPs of all varieties, including dementia care. Like we have so much to offer. And I think for whatever reason, we just have not branched out into these private practices, getting creative, getting innovative, taking risks, going through the insurance accreditation process. Like we need more SLPs like you to take those risks and take those leaps and create services like this because they are so needed. So thank you for doing what you did. Oh, thank you. And yeah, that, I mean, that's something that, um, I joined a lot of Facebook groups that were all PT focused. It was Medicare billing as a PT, um, all these different PT private practice, like closed Facebook groups because they've done it, they've done it and they think outside the box. And I don't know what it is. I'm victim. I mean, like I was not thinking outside the box. Like I just thought, oh, well, you know, we're always just taught it's skilled, it's skilled, it's skilled. Like you always have to be thinking of like a skilled service. And I've taken a Medicare course where they really break down the manual and show you what truly is skilled and what's not skilled and what should be covered by Medicare and what should not be covered by Medicare. And I think that like every speech therapist should take this course um, because it really does help you start to open your eyes about all of the knowledge and the value and the skill set that we have outside of just work. And I'm not saying just working in skilled nursing, but like being able to branch out and go out on your own, there is so much possibility out there. Um, But I think that we, when you work in skilled nursing, like you don't have time to think about anything other than like the productivity and going from patient to patient to patient. So I never thought I would start a private practice. Um, and I honestly, I myself just was tired. I was just tired of working in that setting any longer. I was tired after the PDPM changes. Um, and I just couldn't do it anymore, but I knew I didn't want to give up being an SLP. I just needed to think, how am I going to continue to do what I love? Um, and now that I'm doing it, I couldn't even imagine working for anyone else anymore. This podcast episode is supported by the therapy insights access pass. Get instant access to over a thousand digital downloads, including patient education handouts, clinical tools, and therapy materials. Get on-demand access to courses from a range of clinical experts designed to advance your therapy practice. Stay up to date with the latest research with summaries of recently published research in the library of article snapshots. Spend less time reinventing the wheel and more time connecting with your patients. Elevate your clinical practice with a suite of functional, evidence-based, person-centered therapy resources on demand at your fingertips. Simply click, download, print, and go. Created by and built for speech, occupational, and physical therapists with new content added monthly. Sign up for the Access Pass today at therapyinsights.com. Yeah, I think the burnout rate is so high. Like, it's unprecedentedly unprecedentedly high. That's the right way to say that right now because of everything that's going on. And I do think that a lot of SLPs feel boxed in. They don't feel like there's a lot of options. So I'm super excited to share your story. Because Well, and the other thing about like being in skilled nursing, my favorite population was the dementia population, but everybody knows how it is. You train caregivers, you know, CNAs and two weeks later, they're new CNAs and you feel like you're 
you, you have all this knowledge and you know, what's going to benefit the patient, but it's so frustrating. And so going out on my own, um, and, you know, I'm working with the families and the care is consistent and they are so appreciative. I've never felt this appreciated in my career as I do now that I'm on my own and not just from the families, but even the physicians that I've connected with, Yes, they did not even realize that, um, you know, they didn't realize that speech therapists did all of what we do in terms of that cognitive linguistic um, therapy and focus. And um, I've just never felt this appreciated before. And it's so refreshing. Yeah. Physicians are literally giving copies of the slums to families. Like that is the extent of their know-how and knowledge and insight and what, how to help these families. And it's like, this is not help. That's not I would argue that's doing a lot of harm because like, what are they supposed to do with a slums test? Like there's, they're not trained in giving it. They're not trained in interpreting the score. The other thing I'm seeing is neurologists are referring to neuropsychs, which is great. That's a great first step, but it's almost like, because we have all of our training done. I mean, this is always my soapbox is like, we get these grad school programs in different colleges and we never interact with each other. And then we're just like thrown into this healthcare system where we're all supposed to integrate and interact and there's supposed to be this natural flow, but everybody's really confused. Like physicians are like, what speech therapists work on memory and cognition and like neuropsychs only do evaluations and like who takes over after that point. And there's just a lot of disconnect. So again, what you're doing is helping to bring a lot of clarity to that and having conversations around like how can physicians best refer and support families and not just give them a copy of the slums? Right. Yes, absolutely. Um, and when it came to building my referral system, um, you know, a lot of like, basically in, in the state of Indiana, I was by myself um, at the time, two years ago, I started this two years ago. So I started it in 2019, but I was by myself in terms of anybody who was a mobile private practice with uh, Medicare focus or, you know, geriatric focus. So I had to learn, like I said, from PTs, um, and a lot of, or I was learning from pediatric SLPs, but pediatric, that's a whole different ball game. So a lot of pediatric SLPs would say, you need to go to the physicians and get your name out there to the physicians. But in the adult world, that that's just not the case. Like you're not meeting with the physician. You're meeting with the nurse care coordinator, who's very hard to get in front of. Yeah. Um, so when I was, you know, making people aware that this was a service, I actually did not go to physicians' offices first. Mm-hmm. I started speaking at support groups. Um, I started, um, you know, like Rocksteady Boxing headquarters is here in Indiana, so I started there. Um, and I tried to get my name out that way. And Indiana is a direct access state. So you can um, request services without having the physician's referral first, except I do, I do have the families reach out to their physician before just this random plan of care. So it shows up in their doctor's office and I do make the connection, but the physicians started hearing my name and then they were like, Oh, wait a minute. I need to take a meeting with her. So it's actually the reverse. Yes. Um, So, you know, anybody trying to start something like this, that's what I would say is 
try those things first and then the physicians like catch wind of your name and then they want to meet with you versus <laughs> you know you okay. bring spending all this money and like bringing in bagels and donuts and things yeah. and asking to meet with them so they have a million people who want to meet yes. with them and sell them pharmaceuticals and everything yes. else but then when they're looking for a solution to a problem they have that they're trying to solve which is how do I help these patients they see your yeah. name that's awesome yeah. um so one thing I really like about the memory compass is your focus on coaching for families. So can you talk a little bit about that coaching model and what that looks like? Yeah. So the coaching model is separate from the Medicare part B model. Um, but the coaching is again, it's really targeting more of that sandwich generation or the spouse. Um, so more of the care partners. So in the coaching world, like I, when I'm wearing my coaching hat, I'm actually never seeing the individual who has the diagnosis because I'm not providing any form of therapy. Um, but I am helping the family, um, get a better understanding of, you know, if the neurologist says their loved one has early, middle, late, what does that mean? So I break that down for them in terms of how does it carry over within the home, um, recommendations for different, you know, in-home companion care companies, if they're there at that level, recommendations for adult day centers, um, you know, when they should be connecting with an elder law attorney, um, different products that are on the market, you know, that could possibly help their loved one, um, you know, different safety products or um, just different, you know, med, you know, the med products or the phones or, you know, the clocks, like anything like that. Um, different apps that there are out there that can help families like coordinate and everybody be on the same page. Um, different research studies that are out there that their loved one could be a part of. So it's, it's totally not <laughs> like my SLP role, but it's everything that I have learned along the way while being an SLP. So again, mm -hmm. we have all of this knowledge and skill set um, outside of just our one-on-one -on -one therapy that I feel like we should be providing people out in the community. Yes, 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 absolutely. And I think too, a lot of these families, especially with early stage, there's this sense of like, is this really happening? Like, mm -hmm. how do we know for sure? And it's very scary and very unknown territory and so, and there's nothing really out there. Like, there's nothing to say like, yep, this is what it is. And like the diagnosis itself is very esoteric and very hard to put your finger on. And right. even just having somebody to come talk to and be like, this is what I'm seeing. Is this, you know, on the trajectory of dementia or is it something else? Like even just being able to have that conversation. Right. Sure is very well, and when they're out in the community before maybe needing assisted living or skilled nursing, you know, once they get to that setting, they do have a social worker and they do have their therapy team and they, you know, but before then they don't, they go and they see the neurologist. Um, and in Indiana, we have like, well, the Alzheimer's association has their 24 hour hotline, which is amazing. So families can, you know, call with questions, but a lot of these families, they want to have more of that contact, like they're not given a social worker, they're not given a counselor, they're not given, like, they're not given anything, they're just kind of thrown. And um, from what I've heard from families, like the feedback is that they really like having just that one on one that, 
you know, maybe they were provided a support group, but some of them, they don't feel comfortable asking certain questions in a support group. So they want to have that one-on-one contact person like myself um, to help them through this. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of the way we talk about early intervention. (laughs) Like even when you were starting to talk about like staging people, it's like with kids, we don't like just randomly throw them into a classroom like we assess where they are and exactly what they need. And then we provide curriculum around that and we support the families or we try, we're getting better at supporting them with early intervention and birth to three services. And it's kind of the same model here where it's like the more we can do earlier on and the more we can help people understand the different stages and provide that specific tailored care, the better. Right. I kind of touched on this a little bit, but do you, you often have family members who come in without their loved one who may be experiencing cognitive changes, but they're unsure how to broach the conversation or they're unsure where to go or what to do. And how do you help those families who are very, very, very early on? Yeah, absolutely. So I have families where they at first, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's kind of funny in that, um, They'll start off by saying, oh, we think that, you know, my mom or dad or, you know, grandparent, they're in their 80s, they're in their 90s, like this is just normal, right? But yet they're reaching out to me. So they already know that, you know, they have and they kind of just know that obviously something is not right, but it's just trying to figure out, oh gosh, like where are we headed here? Um, What do we do? Who do we contact first? Um, So yes, I do get those families where they're at the very beginning when we go over, you know, the difference between normal aging and a more advanced cognitive decline. And then, um, you know, the neuropsych centers in the area and the neurologists in the area and who I would, you know, recommend they go see. Um, So yeah, I definitely have those families, you know, especially I have those, often I hear something like, well, I was making my loved one a meal and I, I would, you know, for the week and I was putting a post-it note on it. It said exactly how long they needed to heat it up. But I went over and I noticed they had never taken anything out of their refrigerator and they were just eating, you know, potato chips and candy bars. And that right there is definitely a sign that your loved one is not able to sequence through those steps of preparing the meal. Um, you know, I have families where they'll, they'll buy certain like med dispensers or um, just certain products that probably aren't appropriate for their loved one, but they're doing it, you know, out of love for their loved one, but the products aren't always something that they should be using. So, you know, it's education on that, um, education on what are the signs to look for, you know, between the stages? Um, and yeah, so often I, I do have families where they haven't even received the testing yet. Yep. So one thing I love about what you've created with the memory compass is how structured it is, or at least that's how it feels like when I go onto your website, I'm like, I, it's very clear to me what I can expect when I'm working with you. Um, so can you talk to us about that structured model? Um, like you kind of start off with the consultation and then you have that initial coaching session and then you have continued guidance. So how did you come up with this and how does it serve your clinical practice? Yeah. So I just felt again, like we, our healthcare system is just 
kind of crazy where somebody receives a diagnosis and then they're kind of dropped off, you know, and they don't have any support in the in-between. So I wanted to make sure that my model, it had that initial consult, but then people didn't feel like, well, that's it. You get all this information in an hour and then I never see you again. Um, this disease affects the entire family. And one thing that I like to say is, you know, like doctors treat the patient, but there's a hidden patient in all of this. And I'm not treating them, you know, it's not like I'm a doctor treating the hidden patient, but the hidden patient is the family and they do not have the support that they need. And, um, you know, so my model is you don't just have that one session, but we have follow-up sessions. Um, some are scheduled in advance, um, you know, just to check in and see how things are going. Typically something new has come up. Um, and then there is, you know, being able to still schedule something in the in-between of the already scheduled sessions. So if there is some sort of emergency and they need to talk to me, they can. But I wanted to create something where it wasn't just like, I see you one time and then it's, it's over. And I also set it up this way because when I was doing just one-off consults, because I had never done this before, so I didn't know what I was doing. It's like, well, they'll just schedule one consult and then I'll just wait and maybe they'll schedule another one with me again sometime. But what was happening with that was people weren't calling me or reaching out again until um, they were in more of a crisis situation. And when I'm coaching somebody, like I'm trying to prevent the crisis situation. (laughs) So I've set it up now where it's more of a bundle of time. So families can purchase a bundle of time and then we schedule out that bundle of time so that they're not just reaching out to me in the crisis situation. Somebody's connecting with them in the in-between and hopefully we're trying to prevent a crisis situation. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. And like anytime I work with a coach, that's, that's the model that the coaching industry uses. So it makes right. total sense. Okay. Your wellness plan. So is that, is that what the wellness plan is? Is So, so the wellness is more, um, you know, right when I start with a family and it is Medicare, I let them know that my practice is different. I, I want to build a relationship with you. This is a progressive disease, but unfortunately, you know, Medicare only covers so much of a progressive disease. And of course it all depends when I get in there, of what are the goals going to be and that, you know, their level determines the duration and, and all of that. So, but I want families to know right from the very beginning that even after Medicare discharges, um, I do not plan on just dropping the patient and never seeing them again. Um, you know, so the wellness plan is more, it's, you know, it's on a private pay basis because Medicare, like I said, only covers so much, but, um, I have families that they want me to continue every other week. Um, some, they want me to go in and, and, you know, do carry over the things that we were doing in therapy because Medicare won't cover just because you train somebody and they're not doing it with their loved one, you know, Medicare won't cover that. Um, but it, it's a variety of different things. So it could be different cognitive stimulation activities. It could be, um, you know, I've had families where they want me to go into the assisted living, um, even once a month and just check on their loved one, make sure everything's set up correctly. Um, you know, report back to them. It, every case is a little bit different. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. What a relief. I mean, I can just see families loving having that option of like someone like you going in and just checking in because, those 
all these facilities are just a lot for people to process. I think yes. just a lot of staff and a lot of rules and regulations and right. have somebody yeah. who actually knows that world and can yes. talk with the staff and make arrangements would be very helpful. So I was obsessed for a while with the interview that Brene Brown did with Dr. Jason Carlowish. And he wrote the book, The Problem of Alzheimer's. And they had this phenomenal conversation and his whole book centers around, and I haven't read it. I just listened to the interview, but I want to read it. Um, And he just talks about how like unprepared we are as a society to deal with this growing diagnosis, growing numbers of people with dementia and people with Alzheimer's. Um, And he kind of touches on like what you've talked about, where we have all these insurance roles with Medicare that don't really make a lot of sense. They're not serving, like you're talking about the hidden patient. Um, The facilities aren't really set up to handle this. They're very outdated. The rules and regulations are outdated. People don't really want to take their family members to these facilities. Um, And then we have the issue where physicians are not getting a lot of training on what to do and how to talk to families and how to make those referrals. So it's just kind of this mess. It's this problem that we all have. And so how do you think that we as clinicians can better communicate um, with physicians so that they're referring for expertise, for our expertise, rather than handing out slums tests for families and wishing them good luck? Yeah. So I actually set in on a little think tank Um, where it was a local physician, a nurse care coordinator who owned her own company, and it was someone, a representative from our local um, center on aging. And it was this mini think tank and myself, it was talking about, okay, like we have this broken, broken system and you know, we already have the problem of no reports are getting like sent from one to the next to the next, you know, we all deal with that from the hospitals, skilled nursing to outpatient to, um, but then there's also, you know, one thing that I, I hated is that I would, I would give a slums, like if they were there for rehab, but then where did that go? Did the physician ever, ever see it? And so this physician on this think tank, um, it's like, no, we would never see it. It just kind of got lost in the shuffle. Um, And he also was talking about like amongst, he was a representative for his colleagues and what, what the issue he felt was that when you have a patient and it's like a cardiac patient, there's treatment for that. So doctors are all about like, okay, here's this treatment. Um, But with dementia, there's no treatment. So he said, you know, as a primary care physician, he felt uncomfortable even saying something was dementia. You know, he wanted to refer somebody on to, and, you know, a neurologist, a geriatrician. And um, <laughs> we have a problem there. And he openly admitted we have a problem there. If these families go to their primary care physician and they look up to them, you know, especially that older generation, it's like whatever your doctor say is kind of gold. Well, if the doctor is not comfortable really saying anything, then (laughs) we're really leaving these families in the dark. Um, So there's a lot of advocacy going on, like in the state of Indiana, we're actually the worst state in the United States when it comes to um, like they've been ranked in terms of like elder care. (laughs) 
So I'm walking, I'm like, I'm my, my whole private practice is already basically in like uphill battle as it is, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, you know, I think that there needs to be so much more like my husband, he's a cancer survivor. His whole family was given a team. Um, he had cancer when he was young, his mom, you know, they were given counselors. They had a child psychologist, like the whole family was given this team. And with dementia, I really feel like the family, everybody, you should have like the, here's your neurologist, here's a social worker, here's somebody that's going to, a counselor that's going to check in on the family. An issue that I've had with my own patients is that they've called around different counselors in the area and none of them say that they are experts or have knowledge of the dementia population. It's like this Um, word that just like hovers around the yes. diagnosis that nobody wants to touch. Nobody yes. wants to actually say it. Nobody wants to be the one that's like, yes, that's what it is because it is so hard to define. Yes. And there's no cure. So, right. um, yeah, it's just, I feel like for, as myself as an SLP, like one of my main goals in life is to try to educate and advocate for our profession that we are experts in this area that should be part of people's village. Like I call it a village. Like when you have dementia, your family should be given a village of support and speech therapists, occupational therapists, and physical therapists should all be part of the family's village and letting basically like everybody know who's outside of skilled nursing, that we are key players in this area, knowing how to work with families and that the problem I have is that physicians therapies like this afterthought, they don't think, Oh yeah. So here's this disease and they're going to need an OT and a PT and an SLP. It's something that should be brought up right from the very beginning, but we're going to have to try so hard to advocate for ourselves as a, as a, um, you know, as a profession and, and with Medicare, you know, it's shrinking. So this year, I think it went down 3.6% in terms of reimbursement for, um, like nine, two, five, zero, seven. Um, it is supposed to continue like next year's an anticipated 6%. Um, so we have issues there too. Yep. Who's paying for this? Um, so then it gets put on the family. So I ha- obviously I have a hybrid practice and people do have to private pay for certain services, but it's so costly when they're private paying for someone like myself, they're private paying for in-home companion care. They might be private paying for adult day services. Um, they might be There's private a paying small for slice of society that you can serve. Yes. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, this is like a loaded question. I could talk <laughs> on and on and on about how broken the system is. Um, but coming up with the solution, I don't know. There's a lot of different things that a lot of different players that we have to bring to the table. Um, well, I think what you're doing is launching the conversation forward quite a bit, just with having the memory compass in existence and building these relationships in your communities. And I think that's just all what we kind of have to do is advocate for our profession, advocate for our patients, advocate for interdisciplinary collaboration, provide clear documentation for everything we do, including copies of our tests and results and interpretations so that they're accessible and all of that. Right, right. Do you think that as clinicians, we can have an impact on insurance companies? Oh gosh, I, I don't know. 
I honestly don't. Um, Cause sometimes I feel like they dictate what we do and then we just feel so much pressure. I mean, there's already so much pressure, especially in skilled nursing to like do right. things a certain way and you kind of give up control and give up ethics a little bit, but right. right. <laughs> and then after a while, it's like, well, this, this is the goal because this is what they'll cover. And it doesn't matter what I write. If I don't write it like this, they're not going to cover it. So then I'm like, is it just a matter of being like, no, I'm going to write my own goals or like, is there any control that we have or is it all just this political lobby machine? I, yeah, I, mean, I do feel like it's all like this political lobby machine, but um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't know. I, I'm concerned for, you know, my entire business model <laughs> is, you know, it's Medicare and then private pay. I'm concerned for if things continue to shrink um, in terms of Medicare reimbursement, I honestly don't know what will happen. And I honestly don't know what will happen um, as far as, you know, larger outpatient clinics, how are, how, how is this gonna affect them um, for this population? I just, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty scary. And then I'm like, should we all band together and hire our own lobbyists? But I guess that's what ASHA and APTA and AOTA do. Right. But I don't know if there's this huge focus on dementia, though, right? Um, you know, one thing that I think is scary is that this is becoming this booming business that people are jumping on. Um, mm-hmm. You're seeing assisted livings and skilled nursing facilities pop up on every corner and they say memory care, but it's just a locked unit and there's no true programming. Um, or you see these products that are out on, on the market, kind of like what I was saying before, where families purchase them and they have good intentions, but they're not necessarily appropriate. Right. Um, and I have been seeing, you know, different dementia coaches pop up and I question sometimes, you know, their skill set and their background. Um, like, do they like, did they just take a week on long like seminar and then now they're a dementia coach or, you know, and I just regulation. Yeah. Right. And I mean, it's not like the coaching world is heavily regulated anyway. That's a whole other thing we could talk about, but, um, but I, sometimes I just question, um, you know, this is a booming, booming, this is going to become a booming business. Um, but where are we really helping people in terms of, you know, their Medicare dollars, their therapy, trying to keep them out of the hospital, um, you know, trying to keep them out of needing assisted living or long-term care. I, I don't know. It's like the snowball effect, really. Is there anything like CARF? like how they accredit brain injury recovery centers is there anything like that like has I mean there's like a no I mean there's different associations um but they don't have like a seal of approval on different facilities yeah so how are consumers supposed to know I mean yeah a lot of these skilled nursing facilities are branding their memory care programs and they have really fancy names and like lots of big words, but it's just like 
we we know because we've been right. in these locked memory care units. It's not like that. It's not right at yeah. all. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And it's being marketed to the family. You know, it's like these beautiful facilities. They say they have all these programs. Who is it being marketed to? It's being marketed to the generation that's more, you know, liking that different aesthetic look and they don't want it to look like a nursing home. And I totally understand that, but you can have a beautiful facility that has like a waterfall coming down the wall. We have those in Indiana, (laughs) like spa music's playing, um, (laughs) you know, but what's the programming like? Right. Oh. Yeah. And how is anybody supposed to discern what's okay and what's not okay if nobody's even willing to say the word dementia in a diagnostic situation? Right. Right. Oh, man. Well, I do think that like different solutions are going to pop up and different things are going to carry things forward and carry the conversation forward and everything will change eventually. And I... One thing that I thought was really interesting that I'd never heard of was these daughterhood circles. Yeah. And so you, you were responsible for getting one started in your area. Is that right? Can you well, tell me what I, they I are that whole yeah. process? I can't take all the credit. There is a nurse care coordinator um, who owned her own um, nurse care coordination business. Um, and she had heard about this daughterhood circle and there wasn't one in Indiana. And she had asked if I wanted to be a co-leader. And at first I'm like, well, I don't know. You know, there are a lot of support groups out there. <laughs> do I really want to do this? Um, but then I started researching it. And the whole concept is that it's called a daughterhood circle, but daughters or spouses or sons, you know, anybody can join. But the concept is that when you're young, you meet your childhood friends Um, And because, you know, you have different common bonds, maybe you go to college and you meet people, common bonds through college, maybe you become a parent and you meet, you know, different parents through your kids' sports or whatnot. But then when you get into this space of caring for your aging loved one, there's no, like, people don't interact with each other. It's a very isolating role that someone has. And so there's no, oh, hey, I'm caring for my parent. Can we be friends? (laughs) Um, so this whole daughterhood circle, the concept is that it is other care partners, you know, who are living in that role that they just understand each other. Um, it's a support group in the sense that there are different topics each month and, you know, there might be a different speaker, but, um, we also do fun events. So our goal in Indiana is to like quarterly fun events where it's not at all wrapped around, um, you know, dementia or Alzheimer's, but it's here. We're going to go to this event and have wine and listen to music or, you know, just letting them um, become friends with one another in a space that is comfortable. And, you know, when people are not in that space, they don't understand, um, you know, like, oh, you're running your kids around to different sports, but you're also, you know, getting 10 calls from the skilled nursing facility about your parent. Um, People don't understand all of that. And so this is a group of made up of people who do share in those same experiences and they have these different groups across the U S. Very cool. Yeah. Okay. What is your best advice in general that you have for clinicians working with people with dementia? (laughs) P T O T S L T. Um, 
My best advice is when you are in treatment and you're working with them to really get that holistic view of the patient. Um, when you're writing your goals, they need to be different. Um, they need to be more individualized. They shouldn't just be the click boxes that are in all of our EMR systems. Um, they shouldn't be like, here's a worksheet. Can you remember these 10 words? Um, they should be functional. So, you know, for example, I was doing a training once and it was in a, it was in a skilled nursing facility and we were staging this patient had moved in and she'd never been staged before, but she had been there for um, a couple months, but no speech therapist had ever worked with her. And I went in and I was helping this SLP with the eval and um, she had a phone and it was one of those phones that had the pictures um, for each number and her family had bought it for her, but nobody had ever taught her to use it. Um, so she wasn't using it. Yeah. And I had told the SLP, that's an amazing goal right there. That's functional. Um, you know, it enhances her quality of life. It decreases, you know, having the CNA have to go in there all the time. And that speech therapist had told me that um, she felt like I was fishing for a reason to work with this patient. <laughs> what? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That I was fishing for a reason to work with this patient. Um, that that's not anything that she was ever taught in school to do that. That is not something that we would do as SLPs that, you know, that's not a goal that you would work on. Wow. So I think that we have to start training speech therapists better in undergrad, in grad, for sure, during clinicals, um, you know, during the CFY, functional goals and what our role truly is in this dementia care space. Um, and, you know, taking, taking different courses, reading different books, it's really going to be all on you as a therapist um, to learn about this on your own. Um, Cause unfortunately there's just not a ton out there. Um, yeah. But, you know, if you're in a skilled nursing facility, you should be, you should be educating yourself as much as you can about how to work with this population. Yep. And I'll just throw in there for anyone listening who has not yet heard of her for some reason, check out Sarah Barr at Honeycomb Speech yeah. Therapy. Absolutely. Yep. Yes, absolutely. So functional, functional goals. Um, I, every single, every single um, eval and plan of care I had individual individualized goals, every single one. I never had like, I just, you know, just clicked on a generic goal. They were, every single one of them was individualized. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And I love those phones with the picture buttons. I've used those a lot. I've yes. just ordered them for patients. They're like 30 bucks. And then you just cut out the little picture and program the phone number. It's awesome. Yes. Well, the last question that I always ask everyone because I'm, I love to read. So I want to know what your favorite book is, and it could be related to this topic or completely unrelated to therapy or anything about it. So yeah. Um, okay. So I have a three-year-old, so <laughs> it took me like an entire year to read this book. And I, I wouldn't say like, I actually like to read, I love to read books that don't have to do with what I do every day, because obviously what I do every day can be very difficult. Yes. Um, but I'm kind of late to the game because I think people have all read this already, but Beneath the Scarlet Sky is like one of my favorite books right now. Um, I haven't heard of it, so. 
Yeah. Okay. So it is about, um, it is about a, a, a teenage boy in Italy, um, who I don't want to give too much away, but it's basically, it has to do with world war two and it is based off of a true story. And I really love things that are based off of a true story. Um, and I love history and I just love learning about people's past and their lives and all of that. Obviously, I think that obviously I'm a dimension <laughs> therapist, so I think that ties in, but, um, it is a remarkable story about his life during world war II and everything that he faced and, um, never like his story was hidden for many, many years. People didn't know about it until there was, I believe a journalist who had found out about it and then wrote this amazing book. Um, I highly recommend it. Awesome. All right, Jesse, thank you so much for doing this. It's been a blast talking to you. I feel super inspired. I know everyone who's listening will feel very inspired and engaged. And I know that things are like kind of broken right now, but I do believe they're going to get better and they're going to get better because of people like you. So thank you for doing what you do. And thanks for doing this interview. Thank you so much, Megan. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. And one more thing, um, where can people track you down? Can you talk about your website? And I know you're on Instagram and anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. So my website is just thememorycompass.com. And then I have a Facebook business page. So it's the memory compass, uh, dementia therapy and family coaching. And then my Instagram is the memory compass. Awesome. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you. And that is our episode for today. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Jessie for her time and for this conversation. Super excited and super inspired with everything she's doing with the Memory Compass and how that's going to shift the conversation going forward. If you like this conversation and you like the kinds of conversations that we're having on this podcast, then you will love Therapy Insights. We are a company that serves all three disciplines, OT, PT, and SLP. And we believe that by standing with each other and for each other and collaborating together, we can collectively protect the future of our fields and the future of our disciplines and fight the many battles that we have ahead of us as far as making sure that we can maintain standards of ethics and morals and work standards and have boundaries with insurance companies and for-profit healthcare companies. So check us out at therapyinsights.com. We've got a ton of resources for you to help with health literacy, patient-centered, functional therapy materials, clinical tools and resources, all at your fingertips that you can just click and download and print and go. We've also got a full library of article snapshots, which are one-page summaries of recently published research to help you stay up to date on the evidence base. And we've got a library of continuing education courses that you can take at any time and we have new live courses offered every single month so again that's therapyinsights.com and we'll see you at the next episode
And that is our episode for today. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Jessie for her time and for this conversation. Super excited and super inspired with everything she's doing with the Memory Compass and how that's going to shift the conversation going forward. If you like this conversation and you like the kinds of conversations that we're having on this podcast, then you will love Therapy Insights. We are a company that serves all three disciplines, OT, PT, and SLP. And we believe that by standing with each other and for each other and collaborating together, we can collectively protect the future of our fields and the future of our disciplines and fight the many battles that we have ahead of us as far as making sure that we can maintain standards of ethics and morals and work standards and have boundaries with insurance companies and for-profit healthcare companies. So check us out at therapyinsights.com. We've got a ton of resources for you to help with health literacy, patient-centered functional therapy materials, clinical tools and resources, all at your fingertips that you can just click and download and print and go. We've also got a full library of article snapshots, which are one-page summaries of recently published research to help you stay up to date on the evidence base. And we've got a library of continuing education courses that you can take at any time. And we have new live courses offered every single month. So again, that's therapyinsights.com and we'll see you at the next episode.